0: Hello, Siobhan Hunt here, host of Feed Play Love, the bite-sized parenting podcast. I'll be back with new episodes on Monday next week. My final favourite interview from 2021 is this one with Casey Barros. Casey's been reporting on wellbeing for years, and her insight into how we can live a better life was honest and straightforward. It really resonated with me. I hope you enjoy it. You're listening to Feed, Play, Love, a podcast that's all about supporting parents as they bring up children. We've got experts and advice to help you through the more challenging bits of parenting. I'm Siobhan Hunt. Casey Barros is a health writer and presenter, a mum of two, and now an author. Having researched and discussed wellbeing for many years, she's decided to distill everything she knows into one book. It's called The Bad Girl's Guide to Good, crossed out better. And she <laughs> joins me in the studio. Hi Casey, how Hi, are you?
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Now it's one thing to know all this stuff about well being and another thing to practice it. Mm-hmm. As you've researched different health and well being topics, were you trying them out along the way or did you just sort of absorb it?
1: I definitely did a lot of uh, absorbing, but I I do like to try and put things into practice in my own life because I think it's really difficult to communicate to anybody else what something might feel like or what sort of impact it might have without having tried it yourself. That said, I'm really mindful as a health journalist of of not putting my story into the facts. That said, I'm also <laughs> really mindful that what we see in the research and what we see in the data isn't always necessarily the way that it translates on the ground. And so I think what I've tried to carve out a career in is not only looking at the evidence and really kind of sticking to the evidence base of the information, but also sort of marrying that with the word on the street, if you will. That's really been my focus because I think that that the people's story is, is really powerful and really important too.
0: I, I do ask this question a bit of self-interest here because I've – Done parenting um, content for seven years now. Mm-hmm. And um, I have, I, you would think I'd be the best parent in the world. <laughs> I'm certainly not. But I have noticed that there have been a few things that have stuck, mm-hmm. you know, along the way, sort of the tip of the iceberg if you will. And I'm wondering if there's anything in particular that has stuck. I mean, you can try new things out mm-hmm. and sometimes they don't fit mm-hmm. or as you mentioned, they don't translate the same way as the research says they'll translate. Yeah. Is there anything in particular that you um, have discovered along the way that you keep in your life now?
1: Mm, I'll tell you at a really macro level, what it has all kind of boiled down to for me. I've spent 15 years asking questions of the brightest minds both in our country but also internationally. And one of the things that I learned is that nobody has it together 100% of the time. So I've been <laughs> I love I've been asking questions <laughs> of these people who know everything about this one thing and yet they don't have their mental health, physical well-being, career, slash act generally together all of the time. So we can know all of the things and not necessarily, as you say, practice them or do them. I think there's a big gap between knowing and doing. And what it has all boiled down to for me is that a lot of the messages whilst the science moves quite slowly, the media moves quite fast. And so they're constantly looking for that breakthrough, that silver bullet, that thing that's going to make us click or buy or open or read or watch or listen. And whilst I appreciate the news cycle and I understand it, the messages that have come through to me from the experts over and over and over and over and over again have remained largely consistent and it is not the stuff that sells magazines so i couldn't carve a career out of going out and saying you need to move your body and eat healthy food and take care of your mental well-being and stay connected and you know so we have to i appreciate as a journalist how i have to find new ways of reinventing and delivering information but if i could sum it all up for all of us and certainly this has been my experience I believe that most of our behaviours are intrinsically linked to our self-worth. So our physical self-worth, as in not only what we see in the mirror but what we then choose to fuel our body with and how we choose to move it and take care of it, including going to the doctor when we need to. Then our emotional self-worth, so how we respect and appreciate all of the emotions that live and coexist within us and how we're able to use them in our life and being kind of respectful of the fact that, You know, emotions are like a DJ. It can't be all bangers. It has to be like (laughs) a mix of some slow jam, some bangers. Like you have to go on a bit of a journey and being able to appreciate that and and value yourself enough to use the tools available to you to kind of, I guess, be a bit of an emotional GPS, if you will. I think that that's really powerful. And then spiritual self-worth. And by that, I mean... Your connection to your community, your connection to your sexuality, your connection to the environment, and lastly, your financial self-worth. So not how you spend your money, but how you save it and how much you demand for what you're worth. And I know that sounds really kind of convoluted, but those are sort of four sides of a square, if you will, that for me... That's what I've picked up from all of these experts, and I think that's the key to the gap between the knowing and the doing. Because you know yourself that when you, you don't pull on your sneakers and go for a walk, not because you don't know that you should, because there's something else there at play and i think that when you value yourself enough to eat good food most of the time move your body most of the time save your money so you can live in a great home that makes you feel safe and warm and loved and choose great relationships and all of those things i think that you're in a really good place but i think for most of us there's something lacking there so the self-worth piece would be like the headline, the takeaway of what I've pulled together from what all of those experts have said is the reason that we don't do the things that we're supposed to do when it comes to living well is because we don't value ourselves enough to do so.
0: Wow. I could just stop the interview there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I feel like I talk for too long. No, not at all. That's just like it in a nutshell. I could just take that away, but, um, let's drill down into, um, some of what you've just said there, because that self worth thing is really interesting, I think, particularly for mothers. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like once we have our children, we invest our self worth in them, as mm-hmm. in how well are our children is a reflection on how well we are. Yes. And maybe that's part of the reason why we can't put ourselves first more. Mm-hmm. But um, you have two small children. Did you find that sense of self-worth shift for you when you had your kids?
1: Yes, for better and for worse. All of a sudden, my life made sense in a way that it perhaps didn't before and I you know, it kind of nothing galvanizes the troops like having somebody else to take care of. And I've often said about my girls, I love them more than I could ever possibly love myself. I mean, anybody listening to this who has kids knows and understands that it's a love that you could never have possibly imagined. And so so for better from that sense, like it, it really kind of helped me rally and made sense of what I was here to do. And that's part of what the book, writing the book was all about. It's like at the end of the day i've put into so- something tangible this is everything i think and feel and heaven forbid should something happen to me they've got me in a book here is what i thought and felt and here are some of the things that i struggled with when i was growing up and still struggle with at 37 and i'm sure i will struggle with for many years to come because that's just part of the human existence and so But I suppose to answer your question to the worse part, um, I I do think that you lose a a part of yourself or, or a sense of yourself when you become a mother and so much is stripped away in terms of who you used to be and you are forever changed from that moment. For some people, I think it's that moment that they find out that they're pregnant. For other people, I think it's in the delivery room. And for other people, I think it comes, it kind of grows as a slow burn over time. And then it clicks one day and they're like, holy crap, I know what I'm here. I, I get it now. Like, I know what I'm here to do. And so, but I think for me, a huge part of my identity has been work and how hard I have always worked. And anybody who has kids knows that they're a real spanner in the works for people who like to work really hard because. You can have it all but you just can't have it all at once and otherwise you just end up dropping the ball on everything. And so I have certainly been there and found myself thinking, well, who am I without this career? And I've had to really coach myself through this is just now. You know, this is this period of my life. I will never regret scaling things back a little bit in order to be able to be there for them more. And I don't know, parenting terrifies me. I love them <laughs> yes. so much that it scares me. Of course. And, you know, one of the things that I write in their little, um, little acknowledgement in the back of the book is, and P.S., everything in this book is a lie <laughs> because there's part of me that, that I know that this is the most important book that they will ever read. I think it's the most important book that most most women will ever read because it calls BS on us pretending that we are shiny and perfect and have never made any mistakes because I have made them by the truckload. Some I made a few times just to make sure I'd really, really (laughs) learned them. Um, And finally, at this point in my life, I recognise that I can coexist with all of that. Whereas I used to think, no, I need to be this like serious health journalist by day, but then I would go out and party on the weekends and I couldn't for the life of me see how those two things could coexist. But now, probably as a result of writing the book i've been able to really marry those two things and that's a lovely place to land is that i can have been this party girl but I've also had an incredible career and I can be an incredible mum and I might still do the worm and drink shots one day. I might.
0: <laughs> you like will. I, w- I wouldn't rule roll, roll it out. <laughs> Anyone who's friends uh, with Casey and are planning on getting married, I'm just saying, be aware. <laughs> she said shots that and the worm is on the horizon. They know. <laughs> um, well, going back to what you mentioned there about um, when you have children, it's it's quite terrifying because you love them so much. One of your chapters is called Stop Worrying, mm-hmm. which I love because, of course, I feel the same way about my kids. Mm. Um, I find it probably a little bit easier to have perspective on worries like whether I have a brain tumour or not. That's mm-hmm. one of my <laughs> my mm-hmm. things. Um not, not worrying about whether I'm going to mess up my kids is a little bit harder to let go of. Yeah, right. Probably because I will and we all will to mm. some degree. Sure. How do you find that perspective that you talk about in that chapter on mm. things that are so close to you, like your children?
1: You know, it's so funny that you asked that because I said to my mum this morning, I'm really scared that I'm failing those girls. My, my almost four-year-old is being particularly demanding at the moment and I'm nervous that I have allowed her to turn into a total tyrant. And I know that that's not going to serve her. It's not just that it's annoying to be around. (laughs) Let's just put that out there because it is. Um, But I'm really nervous that I'm doing her a disservice and I don't know what to do about it. You know, I say I'm kind of an average parent at best. Um, When it comes to the love piece, I knock it out of the park. But when it comes to the discipline piece and like the the real parenting skills, I'm pretty crap. I'll have to be honest. Luckily, my my husband is pretty good. Um, and it's so funny because I remember before I became a mum, I was like, I will definitely be the disciplinarian. I <laughs> I am not. My daughter is like, can I have a lollipop for breakfast? I'm like, okay. <laughs> I, I honestly like anything to make them happy. And I, I know that that's not doing the right thing by them. And, and possibly that's a bit of a reflection of trying to have it all. And I try really hard to be at work when I'm at work and be with them when I'm with them. But anybody who's a working parent knows that that one bleeds into the other frequently. And so, look, I don't know... I I am also scared of stuffing my kids up, but somebody said to me, it wasn't mum this morning. She wasn't full of this wisdom, but somebody said to me previously, (laughs) look, the fact that you're even asking that question or saying that thing means that you're already three steps ahead of where plenty of kids are on the planet. And look, that doesn't fill me with happiness or hope because that makes me desperately sad for those kids. But what I do know is that I couldn't try harder. And they know that I love them endlessly. And you know what I did that was really smart was I picked an amazing, amazing father for them. And I fully appreciate that everybody listening to this may not be lucky enough to say that they're in the same position, but I think that you get to choose who their family gets to be. So maybe it's picking incredible godparents or making sure that you make best friends with some of the people in your mother's group so that they have that almost cousin like connection around them. And you know what, like if they're single, I think single mums and single dads are like the heroes of our country. Like we should give them all the order of Australia medal and like clap them in a parade down the street <laughs> because my husband goes away for three days and I completely fall apart at the seams. So I am under no illusions that I am a great parent. I'm I'm not. Um, but what I do know is that I really give a damn about them. And I also know that I can give them everything that I have got and do, try and do everything right. And they could still turn out to be complete mess messes of humans. And I could also do everything wrong and they could turn out to be like Amazing. absolute legends. And so... I can only do my, I can only do my best and like pull in some support if and when, if and when I need it. Mm.
0: You've got a chapter after Stop Worrying called Get a Grip on Your Emotional Intelligence. Mm. And the reason I love this so much is that when we talk about parenting, we talk about teaching our kids emotional intelligence and how important that is. Yeah. But so few adults have emotional intelligence and nobody seems to acknowledge that. So I love that you have that in your book.
1: Yeah, I agree. I agree with that. If anybody has not seen kids' movie Inside Out, you should, as soon as you finish listening to this, (laughs) just stop whatever you are doing and get that movie and watch it because it is such a wonderful, it's such a wonderful but entertaining lesson in, in what I was talking about earlier, which is that this kind of emotional mix of, of essentially energy and emotions and chemicals that kind of lives within us that we can use to our advantage but can also kind of hold us hostage from living the life that we want. And so, you know, what they call emotional granularity is that sort of expanding of that emotional vocabulary. And so I don't know if anybody listening to this can can relate to this, but I'll often find myself, you know, at home cracking a bottle of wine ranting on the phone to a friend or tucking into a a tub of ice cream and if I actually stopped for a second and sat back and thought what's going on here why I all I feel is crap and if I actually stopped for a second and sat back and really thought about it and named it okay so I'm feeling crap but am I feeling vulnerable am I feeling anxious am I stressed am I tired am I angry am I hurt have I been let down? Am I under pressure with a looming deadline? What actually, what is it that I'm feeling? Because I think once you can name it, then you kind of know what to do with it. And to use a parenting analogy, it's kind of like, if your kid has a rash, you're not going to take it to the doctor and then say, mm, they've got a rash they're going to say they've got a rash, it's blanching or it's not blanching and it looks like measles or it looks like a reaction <laughs> or it looks like – like we we need to diagnose our feelings in the same way that you would expect of a doctor treating your ill child. Otherwise, how are we to know what to do with it? And so, you know, it's an age-old trick that psychologists will talk about, but being able to stop for a second, we kind of forget that we are entitled to just take a minute and breathe and kind of get those feelings out of your head or your heart or your gut or wherever they are and kind of put them on the table in front of you and just sit back for a sec and go like, okay, I'm recognising that I'm feeling X. Like put your coach's cap back on and think like, what's my next best move? Because I think we can really like run as fast as we can down this lane of like, I don't like this feeling. I just do anything to feel better. And often that's when we snap at somebody eat the whole tub of ice cream, drink too much wine, snap at our kids, fire off the email when we probably should have just taken a moment. And so I think the better we get at recognising that all of those emotions are designed to live within us and embrace that, I think the better off we get. Mm. We run so far in the direction, in the other direction, from what we call these negative emotions, like anger and sadness and like this beautiful um, psychologist that I work with a lot, uh, Dr. Tim Sharp, he's a positive psychologist. He, you might know him as Dr. Happy. He says that, you know, we, we need to stop. that they're, they're not negative emotions. They're all designed to, to show us something or say like, Hey, like red flag or white flag, you're feeling a certain way because you need to take some action or some course to remedy something in your life. So I think we need to stop viewing them negatively and accept that it's kind of like the, like colours in your kid's paint box. We need all of them, all of them, even the black ones and the Mm. grey ones.
0: Mm. The other chapter, and then I'll stop talking about the chapters and everyone can read the book, (laughs) um, you have is called uh, Be Your Own BFF, Best Friend Forever (laughs) if you haven't got a child in kinder yet. Um, And I think the thing I like particularly about this chapter is Mm. that we are told as parents that we need to practice self-compassion, that we need to put ourselves first. And apart from saying, okay, I need to book myself in for a massage or I need to make sure I go and do that yoga class or whatever it might be, um, self-compassion I feel is a really ephemeral concept. Mm -hmm. It's very hard to understand how to practice that. Mm. But you actually have some really practical steps on how to do that Mm. in this book. How did you come about kind of putting that all together?
1: Well, I think everybody's probably heard somebody say, you know, that we speak to ourselves in ways that we would never, ever treat the people that we care about the most. I think one of the beautiful things about becoming a parent is that all of a sudden you have these tiny versions of you and your job is to shepherd them through the world. So. If my daughter came home and said I had a really bad day and I stuffed up my painting at school and, you know, I went outside the lines and I, I knocked the water over, I wouldn't be saying to her, you are such an idiot. Like, what is wrong with you? I can't believe that you that you went outside the lines. Get it together. <laughs> yeah. I would be saying to her, like, sweetheart. Don't worry about it. Like, you made a mistake, it's fine. Every mistake that you make will make you a better painter next time. We all knock the water over sometimes. Don't sweat it. I love you. You're fine. But we don't speak to ourselves like that, and that's such a shame. And, you know, when we go to the park or the playground with our kids, and if we ever saw them push another kid over or hit them or bite them or not share their snacks with them or whatever – we would be having stern talking to them about not treating somebody else like that and certainly for for parents with older kids if we heard them say to themselves you're fat you're ugly you're dumb you're no good at this um we would be incredibly concerned about their mental well-being and we would be trying to coach them through it or possibly even recruiting outside help to help us manage that We'd, the alarm bells would really be going off at that point and yet we talk to ourselves like that every single day. And so that whole chapter is about like getting on your own side because the research and the data tells us that connection is vital. We know that for our health, for our happiness, we need great, strong, trusted, reliable connections, not only with our friends and our family, but also with our communities. You know, we're pack animals. We need that. There's a biological imperative for that. But we also need to get better at being really good friends with ourselves and I think I don't know why but at some point along the way we stopped doing that and I don't know when it happens I don't know when it happened in my life probably around my teenage years I suspect and so when you get to say 37 where I am now I've been talking to myself like crap for 20 years I can't click my fingers or read an inspirational Instagram quote and go like, okay, positive vibes only, everybody from here on in. That's not going to cut the mustard because I've been bullying myself, which is essentially what it is. And I interview an incredible expert called Dr. Jody Lowinger from the Sydney Anxiety Clinic, um, who talks about wrangling your inner worry bully. And I love that. I love that term, and, and that really, in essence, is what it is. And if you got hauled into your kids. Uh, principal's office at school and they said, look, your kid's being a bully or your kid's being bullied. You'd be so concerned about that. And yet we do it to ourselves every day. And so it's, it's kind of about breaking down why we do that and looking for ways in which to treat ourselves a little bit more kindly. I think we expect far too much of ourselves. And when we stuff things up, which we do frequently and we'll do frequently forever, we're so tough on ourselves and that just doesn't serve anybody. Mm. It just doesn't. And I wish if, there was, if I had one wish, and this is where I'm trying to get to in my life, that I was more of the like, oh, well, get up, dust yourself off, you're fine, love yourself anyway. But for whatever reason, I just wasn't built like that. So I'm trying to build it in myself and I don't think it's ever too late to do that.
0: I could talk to you all day about this book, but I will stop there and encourage everyone to go out and get it. It is available now at all good bookstores, and we'll put a link in the notes of this episode as well. Casey, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. That's Casey Barros. Her book is called The Bad Girl's Guide to Good, cross it out, better.